0: If you're like me and you come from a broken family, you've likely dealt with a lot of fear. And so often that fear holds us back in life and relationships. And at the core of that fear is usually the fact that we don't feel safe. And we've seen this again and again with the young people from broken families that we work with at Restored. It's a real struggle. It's a debilitating struggle. And so in this episode, a psychologist joins us to discuss why so many people struggle to feel safe and how that affects their life and relationships. She also answers the questions, what exactly is healing? She hits on the three aspects of healing. What are common misconceptions about healing? We talk about how healing is actually quite intense, especially at first. Is healing actually possible? Or Are those of us who feel broken doomed to merely manage symptoms? What should I do if I feel afraid or embarrassed about seeing a therapist? And then she offers a healing tool that involves music called the Safe and Sound Protocol. Really great stuff in this episode. You're going to learn a lot from this interview, so keep listening. Welcome to the Restored Podcast, helping you heal and grow from the trauma of your parents' divorce, separation, or broken marriage, so you can feel whole again. I'm your host, Joey Panarelli. Thanks so much for listening. This is episode 81. If this podcast or other resources from Restored have helped you, we'd love to hear how they've helped you. And the benefits of sharing how we've helped you is that it gives us insight into what's most valuable for you so we can do more of it. It helps us set strategy for the future so we can keep serving you. And it shows people the effectiveness of our work, which convinces others to use our content and our tools. If you want to share your story, here's how. Just go to restoredministry.com slash testimony, restoredministry.com slash testimony. Just answer the quick questions about how Restored has helped you. It can be anonymous, by the way, totally your choice. And then we'll turn that into an anonymous blog article. So if you want to share how Restored has helped you, just do that today at restoredministry.com dot com slash testimony my guest today is dr rebecca showalter since she was a child dr rebecca had a fascination with people and their stories and later in life she graduated from the institute for the psychological sciences in arlington virginia where she studied the human person on a philosophical and scientific level after receiving her doctorate in clinical psychology she became the director of testing at saint Raphael counseling in denver colorado She now has a private practice in the Denver area. She's trained in various therapy methods, including emotion-focused therapy, interpersonal therapy, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, that's EMDR therapy, internal family systems therapy, and non-directive child-centered play therapy. On that last note, she has a passion for the psychological development of children and has seen that method of therapy help children find significant growth and change in just a handful of sessions. Dr. Rebecca also works with parents on how to play therapeutically with their children and build secure attachment, which basically means a strong and loving bond between them that's built on trust. In the 15 plus years she's spent in psychology, she's learned that her ability to help others heal and grow is actually dependent upon her own healing and growth. She's also learned that she still has a lot to learn. So here's my conversation with Dr. Showalter. Rebecca, it's so good to have you on the show. Thanks for making time for us.
1: Thanks, Joey. It's really great to be here.
0: I'm excited to learn more about the particular therapy that you offer and then as well talk about healing. But before we get to that, I have kind of an interesting question for you. And that is, uh, why do you do what you do? I'm always interested to hear kind of what makes people tick and what drives them? What What's your purpose? So, so why do you do what you do?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's it's a different answer now from when I initially started. I think going down this path, I had a strong sense of of really wanting to do something, you know, I guess just sounds kind of cliche, but important with my life and something that really helped other people. And in general, you know, I always had good feedback about being a good listener and, and being a calming presence and really helping people. And yeah, so, so initially I was in, you know, college, I was initially a business major And then at some point I realized, no, I think I just want to be a a therapist. And so I switched over to psych, but I was kind of ambivalent about it. So then I ended up doing English literature, but that, that desire to kind of do that was, was still there. And, and I pursued it. And now, honestly, I would say I'm, I'm fascinated by human development and the ability to, to change and grow and heal and, the sky is the limit kind of an idea and how far can we really, how far can I go personally and how far can, can my clients grow and change and heal? And I I really believe people have the power to substantially change their lives and, you know, change the direction that their life is going and reevaluate even mid, midlife kind of thing. That's certainly been the case for me. I just can't imagine having to have continued to live the life I was living for a while. The, the gift and help that psychology and therapy has been for me is, I, yeah, it's hard to put words to it. It's been really profound for me. And I love being in a place where my work is both continuing to do that work for myself and helping others in that mm-hmm. way. I also do psych assessments, which I just find completely fascinating. I think it's wonderful that we have all these tools and measures that can really help get behind defenses and and help somebody understand themselves in a way that just simply looking in a mirror or being in some kind of echo chamber will never help them attain. So,
0: yeah, that makes, that makes so much sense. And I was talking with a friend recently where, you know, especially when there's some illness, a physical illness, let's say you're dealing with, it's so freeing to be able to like put a name to it to say, this is your diagnosis. This is what's wrong. And there's such fear and uncertainty and not knowing and being like, something's wrong with me. I can tell, but I just don't know what is. So the psych assessments make so much sense. I'm excited to maybe discuss that a little bit more. I love what you said about human potential, about our ability to change and grow and heal and all that. And I think some people struggle to believe in that at all. And so I want to talk with you a little bit later uh, about healing in itself. Like, what does that mean? And how do we... Yeah go about it and you know what are some of the misconceptions. But before we get there, I'm curious about the therapy uh that, that you practice. For those of us who haven't heard about it, can you give us a, a general overview of what safe and sound the uh, protocol, what the safe and sound protocol yep. is and and how it can help someone.
1: You bet. The first element there, the first misnomer is that um it's not actually a therapy. It is an intervention, but it doesn't stand alone as a therapy. The the safe and sound protocol is it's a series. It's five hours of music that has been filtered, so that the frequencies in it have been changed. So it's major cover. It's it's covers of of music that anybody would would um, recognize from the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties. The kid version is Disney music, but they're covers, and these covers have been altered or modified so that the frequencies are different this it's born out of the the polyvagal theory which um dr stephen porges is is the sort of leading i'm not even entirely sure what he is he might be a neurobiologist or a neuropsychologist something along those lines anyway he's what they've discovered is that the middle ear muscles around your eardrum are like any other muscle in your body it can become very good at doing something if you practice it a lot, and it can become it can atrophy. It cannot do something at all well if if you don't use it. And so, people who have been in traumatic situations—now that could be major trauma, like war zone trauma, you know, brutal car accidents, uh, the, the immediate loss of a loved one. It can also be sustained criticism, sustained fighting, sustained tension, sustained all these ways in which we can experience disruptions, significant disruptions interpersonally with other people. Um, so for people who grew up in a really contentious household or a lot of fighting or a lot of shaming, uh, th- those are in this way of of understanding the human person, those are very traumatic experiences um, and they're chronic, which is even worse. And so what happens is over time, those muscles in the middle ear around the eardrum become very good at hearing low frequencies sounds of danger and and maybe even very high frequencies and that's another another range in which danger sounds reside that those muscles become less good at hearing the sounds of safety that are around them so in the human in the human voice or in the gentle breeze just all kinds of ways that that there are actually sounds of safety so this is what we consider a very bottom-up approach to treating somebody. This is an understanding that we cannot really access through just talking. So so traditional talk therapy methods kind of fall apart at this level um, because it takes a lot to really even know how your central nervous system is responding to sound. Like that's if you were to just ask any sort of person off the street. They would have very little, unless they've really done a lot of bodily somatic work, they would have very little access to knowing how their system is responding to sound. So what they've done in this music is they've modified it and 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 arranged the frequency such that it's actually training your middle ear to tighten back up so that it can hear these sounds of safety, so that it knows that the human voice that it's hearing is actually a safe human voice, for Mm -hmm. example
0: fascinating Uh, an example
1: i'd like to give is um so we have different. this is very physiologically based so we, we that's back to this understanding that we there's the parasympathetic zone which hopefully we live in most of the time that's the rest and digest that's where social engagement can happen you can be at ease with people around you having a good time hanging out with people then there's the sympathetic level and that's the fight or flight And that's when there's a threat or danger, but you can overcome it by either fleeing or fighting. And then the third level of of activation, if you will, is the freeze zone. And uh, that's when the threat is so large that you can't overcome it and you have to freeze. For example, if if the fire alarm were to go off in the house, that's automatically going to send somebody into the sympathetic fight or flight. Um, Either put out the fire or or get out of the house. Now, let's say you you look around and you realize, oh, there's absolutely no fire. It's just that the bacon's smoking a little more, you know, than it so okay, I'm going to go over and turn the bacon down, fan the smoke detector so that it stops beeping. And then ideally, we should be able to move right back into the parasympathetic. There is no threat, we're totally safe, everything's fine. But what's the reality for most people is they've been triggered and they're not gonna move back down into safety. They're gonna be on edge, even though even though cognitively they know, okay, it was just the smoking bacon, everything's fine, there's no fire. Their system doesn't know how to re-enter safety, to re-enter the parasympathetic. Um, it's it for a lot of people, it was just never safe to do that. It was always safer to stay on alert in some way. Um, so this music is really designed to help people. To help people's system automatically learn how to shift back into safety when the signs of safety are present so that people don't have to walk around living in a state of tension fight or flight fear anxiety depression if it moves up into that free zone
0: amazing thank you for explaining that i love the science behind it too i think that's so important to to talk about as well because a lot of people don't have that understanding i can see this left and right even in my own life coming from a broken family, but also in the lives of the young people that we serve, how, yeah, we seem to be on that extra alert mode, that kind of looking around, scanning around for some disaster, just always on guard. And one of the ways in which I've seen that be the most devastating in the lives of these young people, and even in my own life, is how it affects your relationships, which I want to touch on in in a second. But first, it seems like the main focus of all of this protocol is to make people feel safe and Maybe it's an obvious question, but I know you touched on it a little bit. But why do you think this is a struggle for for so many people, especially people who come from broken families?
1: Well, safety—that's in some ways—that's the initial task in in our life as as young children, as infants, is to is to feel safe. I, I guess "task" is probably not the right word there. But but we're—that's the equilibrium we're trying to achieve all the time as as babies is safety, and with a really well-regulated set of parents or caregivers that's usually pretty easy they're safe they're providing a safe environment they react really positively to everything the child does even if it's cry even if it's at a certain point babies have teeth and and you know they figure out the teeth and they start to bite and if you've got parents that respond really well to all of that and continue to create safety well that gets into some of other theorists work like Colby and, and other psychologists who have who have discovered this whole area of attachment theory and what is required for children to be to be able to develop. And uh strong, safe attachment is is crucial for people to develop, to be able to explore, to be able to learn, to be able to understand. So safety underlies all of that. Safety is so basic. It's so important. When children are asking questions, they're almost always asking questions of safety instead of information, even though it sounds like they're asking for information. You know, so, so adults can get kind of tripped up in our adult ways. We're sort of like, Oh, providing a ton of information to children where really the children are, are wondering and, and trying to find evidence that they're safe. Now, if you grow up, mm-hmm. In an environment um, where that's not the case, the parents aren't particularly well-attuned. Uh, maybe they haven't, haven't worked through all of their own difficulties and triggers, and so if they're easily triggered by something the child does, and then they react very badly, all of that is giving feedback to the child that you're not safe, you're not safe, this isn't entirely safe, This it's certainly not safe to have those feelings, or it's certainly not safe to say that thing. And I want to be clear here, it, it, there doesn't need to be physical abuse. It doesn't need to get to that level for a child to be aware that the environment's not safe. Ask any child, any sensitive child who walks into a school room full of kids that are ready to tease and pick on. And it's certainly an ex- experience of that school room is not safe, even though physically they may be entirely safe, so to speak. So, yeah, safety safety is required for all of this, like, all of these positive movements in somebody's life potential growth in order to meet your potential to get curious to ask questions to learn to explore and to and to be at rest to to stay kind of extended periods of rest and see how that you know what that brings to a person's body so it doesn't take much unfortunately to disrupt a person's experience of safety because especially emotional safety and i do think that that's because a lot of people are not very emotionally grounded and attuned to themselves and so if you do or say something that disrupts their quote unquote inner peace there could be an argument made that they don't really have inner peace if that's the case but if you do as a child if you do or say something that just triggers mom or dad triggers a caregiver triggers the teacher and then they just kind of flip or turn or you see a side of them that's scary yeah. You just learned very quickly that that being on high alert is 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 the safest way to to be.
0: Yeah. No, it makes sense. It's,
1: yeah. Yeah, you're not safe.
0: Even though you're not safe. Yeah. It it makes so much sense. And I'm just thinking through some of the research on divorce and the people that we've worked with as well, that this rings um so true. And one of the fascinating things when you said that there doesn't need to be physical abuse. Obviously, there's situations, a lot of the researchers break down divorces into kind of two buckets where there's high conflict divorces and low conflict divorces, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And what one researcher, Paul Amato from Penn State, he's a sociologist there, he studied this extensively. What he found actually was fascinating, that high conflict divorces where there's abuse, there's violence, there's a lot of overt uh, drama and conflict. Um, He said those situations, um, you know, a child can actually benefit from a separation, obviously, because they need to get to safety. And the divorce in itself, though it is still impactful and it can be traumatic, um, it's not the most traumatic. The most traumatic situation when it comes to your parents' marriage falling apart is the low conflict situation where there's more covert problems. There's not the violence, abuse. Um, there's not um, a lot of screaming, conflict fighting that way. There are problems, not to minimize those in any way. But to the child, it looks like, well, things seem fine. And then dad was gone. And, you know, our family has fallen apart. And he, he what he, says is that they found that those low-conflict situations are actually the most impactful, the most traumatic on the child because it seemed, going back to your point, it seemed like everything was safe, and yeah. then it wasn't. And then what we've observed working with young people from broken families is that you go through life almost thinking, well, my family was supposed to be the most stable thing in my life, and if that fell apart, well, what won't fall apart? And then we kind That's of right. get are on edge in that mode that you said always – thinking that there's a disaster around every corner.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I do think that it's the best way to put this. Children are aware of discrepancies and dissonance, just like everybody else. They may not have the language for it. They may not be able to put words around it, but a fan, especially a family where um, it's not talked about. It's kind of implied or understood, or there's some kind of delusion going on that the family's doing just fine, that it's a great family, even even a positive family life. And then all of a sudden, you know, one day the the child hears, oh, no, you know, mom or dad are, are, are moving out. I mean, first of all, that's abandonment. Mm. And that that will always, I mean, that's that's the scariest thing for a child in some ways is to be abandoned by a parent even if it's even if the, the 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 parent is nearby and sees them frequently um just the act of moving out of the home is is there's no way getting around that that's an abandonment and then the child is left with this understanding that yeah there's there there's this strong dissonance we we say things we 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 pretend like things have been one way and and really the reality is things have been differently and to put it in context, that the, the reaction of that is much like you're being gaslighted by somebody, like, wait a minute, what you're saying is not real, is not true. The things you've been telling me, you know, we're fine. Mom and dad are fine. We're fine. We just have these fights, you know, all parents fight, you know, this is okay. Um, you know, I, I, it, it, these low conflict fights don't, or, or divorces maybe don't always include those elements, but but something like that, where you're you're sort of believing that okay we're in the realm of normal here we're in the realm of everything's pretty much okay and then things turn on a dime. I mean that 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 rattles somebody's sense of reality to their core really it, that that makes a lot of sense to me that those would be worse that that the fallout from that would be worse than it's highly contentious we all see it that, that it's really clear that nobody's doing well here yeah and and there's no pretense about it.
0: Yeah. No, I'm with you there. And obviously both are tragic. I know we both would say that, but can definitely observe the different effect that the, you know, the split up itself would have on the child. Thinking back to the point you made about children always seeking safety, it makes so much sense. My wife and I, we have a a daughter who's a little over one And she's not talking much yet. She'll say words and things, but it's really uh, beautiful to kind of just observe the different things that she wants or the way in which she's communicating. And I could totally see that thread of safety. Just when mom leaves the room, she's like, gets so sad. Or when, you know, I need to go go out for a little bit so i'm jumping in the car she's you know like no i don't want you to leave (laughs) so i can see how she feels safe with both of us there and i've noticed even we're not always able to be together as a family because if i'm working or you know different my wife's doing chores or you know going shopping whatever Uh, we're not always able to be together as a family but when all three of us are together she just loves it there's just her face looks different her eyes even look different she's she feels like so safe and content and the other day we were just uh you know we're playing around and we were all like laying in our bed and she just was laying in between us and she just looked so happy and she was just playing like normal and so you know that would be an amazing thing to to be able to experience throughout the breath of our life but obviously there's tragic things that happen and so i want to talk about that a little bit Being in that place of not feeling safe, uh, how does that affect your day-to-day life and relationships going back to that point uh, earlier?
1: Uh, It's going to be unique to everybody in some ways. We can say some general things, but in therapy, the work of therapy is really helping somebody unravel and unpack and really understand the cost of it to their own lives, what, what their specific costs are for not feeling safe, for feeling on edge. You're going to get a lot of different presentations of what that looks like. For some people, there's going to be there's going to be a sort of an, an anxious need to to constantly be validated or 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 given some kind of sign that everything's okay. So this, you know, um, I'm not, I'm sure you've had people on your podcast before that have talked about attachment styles, but this is the anxious attachment person, yeah, who who just can't even if if everything's good for a few seconds or for minutes um, as soon as the the other person walks away as soon as the other person is having a thought that's sort of carrying them off into the distance and their face changes that really rattles people who have this anxious attachment you know what's going on inside of them have things changed now you know if if you grew up in an environment where things could turn on a dime you're always waiting for things to turn on a dime even if the person you're with is 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 steady and stable and and has their has a lot of emotional regulation. Some people are just going to shut down and avoid and and be distant, um, not engage, at least not engage in any deeply meaningful way. Some people are just going to pretend. that What they learned is that if you pretend well enough, it really makes everybody happy. And, and, and that's the best way to happiness is when people around you are happy. So you just pretend everything's okay, find things to talk about or say that, that will please other people. Yeah, you've got people who get strong dependency issues. You get people who have strong avoidant issues. There's a lot that goes into what creates different disorders, but almost certainly anxiety and depression are going to show up. Maybe some of the more significant disorders. A borderline personality disorder is a common personality disorder, which is really center. It's that the one of the central problems for somebody with, with borderline personality disorder is. The desire to be very close to somebody else, but the inability to trust. And there's a lot of anger there. There's a lot of fear of abandonment. So those are some different ways it can present.
0: Makes so much sense. And again, you're speaking our language, all of our audience members um, either come from a broken family or they know someone who does. And yeah, even thinking back through my own story, I'm pretty vulnerable with our audience and an attempt to hopefully be somewhat of a guinea pig so they can learn. But I remember I was 10, 11 years old when my parents separated. And I couldn't put it into words then, but I remember feeling abandoned, unwanted, and like I just wasn't good enough. And in the months and years that followed, I dealt with all sorts of problems. You you named a lot of them, emotional problems, anxiety, depression, loneliness, a lot of anger. Dealt with relationship struggles. Like I remember as a kid, after my parents separated and later got divorced, I remember thinking, I'll never get married. Like if this is how it ends, why in the world would I want that? It's so painful. And then, you know, struggling to trust people to be vulnerable. When it came time to, you know, start dating and enter into these serious relationships, I just was so terrified. And I haven't heard a lot of people talk about that. And the way you talk about it is really beautiful and accurate about how, yeah, we go and we have a lot of fear of love and relationships and vulnerability that can hold us back from really forming those healthy relationships. I know I had to fight through a lot of that and I found a lot of healing along the way and guidance from my mentors and therapists but um but it's a lot it's a lot to go through and um i uh yeah so everything you're saying certainly tracking with you there and I, I you can see how going through that trauma and causes you not to feel safe and then not feeling safe impacts your everyday life and your relationships so much And i'm sure we could take the entire show to talk about that before we transition into healing any final thoughts on
1: I liked that you brought up loneliness. I think that that's really key. I think these experiences leave people feeling incredibly alone and unable to trust the very thing that rescues you from loneliness, unable to trust relationships.
0: Wow. Yeah. And this whole idea that connection and intimacy is really the antithesis or maybe the antidote to trauma is so important to focus on because if we're running from it you know we're never going to find the healing and the growth that we we all long for.
1: Yeah, one final thought here along those lines. There a child can endure and and come out of almost any traumatic experience relatively unscathed emotionally if they have a very highly resourced and attuned attachment figure essentially parent or or father mother caregiver That is in the moment, a a child can sustain a tremendous amount of trauma, whether, you know, however that comes about, if they're doing it in the arms of somebody who is, who is very healthy and attached and providing the antidote as it's happening, providing the connection, the security, the love. Yeah. And that's what we want to recreate in therapies, in the therapy setting is that we want to help people finally be able to fully process out the trauma because they're in an environment where that's actually possible the, the safety and the the strength of the connection the strength of the attachment is strong enough to endure the trauma whatever the trauma may be
0: amazing it makes so much sense one of the, the trauma therapists that we refer people to and that we've had on the show she says that uh, what makes a trauma trauma is how it gets taken care of or a lack thereof. And so it seems to go in line with everything that you just said, which I think is is really beautiful and shows the importance of having those relationships. We could talk forever, but I want to be respectful of your time. Transitioning into healing, I'm curious, how do you define healing?
1: Personally, my what's what makes the most sense for me is to is to start with how does healing just happen in nature when the human brain doesn't have to get involved and figure it out, how does it happen? And, you know, there's tons of evidence for that everywhere. The body can heal itself of physical injuries, mo- a lot of physical injuries without intervention. In fact, usually what we have to do is get out of the body's way. You know, if there's a significant cut, we just have to make sure that that cut's protected so that it can heal. And we all know those, you know, I grew up with my brother's just a year younger. One of my brothers is just a year younger and he and his best friend all throughout our our adolescence their, their legs were just constantly torn up because they, they would just re-itch all these bug bites and all these scars. And they just were forever yeah. reopening these wounds. <laughs> and of course, as a teenage girl, I just found it so disgusting. I didn't want to be anywhere near them. Like, if we had to sit next to each other in a car or something, I was just... But that's that's a good example of we can prevent healing physically uh, we actually don't do much to make our bodies heal themselves. They, it, it, that's really all there. If the trauma is significant enough, then we do need to intervene. You know, if, if the bone breaks to the degree that it needs to be reset, then we certainly need to, to do that. So it's not, you know, there we have ERs for a reason. Our, we can't, you know, rely on on the body to be able to heal everything at least quickly enough. You know, we might bleed out first. So that's, so one of the things we want to do emotionally is, is understand, okay, what do we need? How do we need to protect the natural process that the body goes through? How do we clear away the things that would get involved? And one of the things that gets in or gets in the way of of healing is our own defenses, that mm. early on, we learn a system of defenses that are really crucial and helpful to survive. Different aspects of our childhood, whether it's at the home, whether it's at school, you know, anywhere else. We want to be very mindful of, of the defense structures that were necessary as children, but are no longer necessary. In fact, are impacting, impeding, hindering our, our own emotional healing. So that's one layer of it. The other layer is another layer is what, what does emotional healing look like? how how do when we remove all obstacles are we prepared for what happens and this is a difficult area because to heal emotionally you have to feel there's no way else through that you have to do what you weren't able to do at the time so as an example if a child is if there's a thunderstorm happening and the child and it's right overhead and the booms are loud and the lightning is is sharp and you know lighting up the sky it's going to terrify a child the healthiest way for a child to adapt to that is to feel all that fear as it's happening with and in the presence of in the arms of the parent or the, or mm-hmm. the, the caregiver who can say, I know it's really scary. It's okay that it's scary. I'm right here and I'm going to do everything I can to protect you. And the, the whole idea, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't cry. Don't cry. Don't be angry. Don't be angry all of that trains us that the very thing that we need to heal us is wrong is bad so we have to so we really have to relearn that and this is where it gets tricky talk therapy is it can it can take it, it, it takes a very skilled therapist i think and a very willing client a, a, a client who's got a lot of motivation to to really persist in retraining somebody's system to feel when they believe that such an odd such a A deep you know primary consciousness level they believe that feeling is not good is not safe they're not actually supposed to feel so so there's some reworking there and i'll bring in one more element to this question which i think is important in psychology we are focused on healing but we're also focused on development and so one of the leading questions we have when going in working with a client is how has this person advanced through their own development? Have they advanced? Or is there places and ways in which their development has been stunted? Are they underdeveloped? So if you have a lot, significant amount of emotional abuse um, that you've been, you know, at the mercy of growing up, most likely you're embedded in a community and around people that aren't emotionally developed themselves, or else they they certainly wouldn't be allowing that environment to be as it is. And so it's very hard to learn how to develop emotionally around other people who aren't emotionally developed. So part of healing, in a way, is, is actually just growing and 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 developing, thriving. Like, for example, I broke my collarbone a few years ago, and uh for a few months I had to I, I was protecting it as it was as it was healing. And at some point the bone totally healed and and the muscles were totally fine around it. But my shoulder was still sitting out of place because I had all the muscles that were supposed to hold it kind of back were had atrophied, had lost all of their development. So even though healing, quote unquote, had taken place, I was unable to to access my potential in my shoulder until I redeveloped those muscles. Wow. So, yeah, so so heal, the question about healing is really important, but the language of development is almost always alongside of it for us as therapists.
0: That's amazing. No, I, I love every point that you hit. And one of the things that always fascinates me when it comes to trauma is how we can really act out of that part of ourselves that was enduring that trauma. So, for example, if, you know, I was 10, 11 years old when my parents separated, if I'm triggered in the right way, and you know, let's say that trauma hasn't been processed, I've done a lot of work to do that, but let's just say it hasn't been processed, I can act out of that 10, 11-year-old kid. And like you said, with the defensiveness and everything that we need to really go beyond, it, it, can, be, it can be a real struggle. And I, we see that a lot in the young people that, that we work with. And so it, it makes so much sense that that's a piece of it. And then also really feeling your feelings. I love that you touched on that because, yeah, I think that feelings can become suspect and it can be this and you articulate that better than i can but um, it can get to a point where we maybe prefer to feel numb i know for um, a long time you know as a teenager going through everything with my family i remember just periods of feeling so numb and uh and i've seen that a lot in the young people that we've worked with but then finally the last point you made about healing not just being about taking care of the wound itself but all the other effects and continuing to grow and to develop to the point where you're not that 10, 11 year old kid anymore. You're now that fully formed adult who has emotional, who has that affect maturity. And so I, I love how there's different components to it. I'm sure we could spend all day going through, through all of these, but uh, yeah, I, I love how you broke that all down.
1: Yeah. Awesome. No, I, I think you're right on with that understanding and thank God for the going numb. That dissociation is crucial to getting through it. It won't get you yeah. everywhere you want to go in life, but for the period of time you're trying to survive, it's, it's an, incre- it's a, it's an imma- it's a miraculous invention by the human mind really to help us get through. Yeah.
0: It's a great defense mechanism. Yeah. I always, when I'm talking with young people, I always say that, imagine if you felt everything that your body can feel in that moment, you would be completely overwhelmed. It would be yeah. horrible. And so I, I'm with you there. What misconceptions are there around healing and the, the healing and growth process?
1: Ooh, yeah, that's, That's a big question. Let's see. I would What are some of the main ones? yeah, Yeah, yeah. Let's think about the ones that are most helpful here. I think probably the one that's most painful for people is this sense that once you're out of the war zone, so to speak, you should be fine. It's no longer happening. You're no longer there. That was such a long time ago. That was, can you really remember that? I mean, your parents were good people. I mean, your parents really, you know, all of this, sense that okay okay maybe you know when when you know the fighting got really loud you know okay yeah sure that makes sense that you were that you were really scared then but why are you scared in your life now you're totally fine you're out of that so you know why do you need to go to therapy you know okay is was it really that bad all of this like idea that if if you're out it's it's the misconception that that the threat has to be physical and present in order for somebody to be experiencing the threat inside and so I would say that the healing process is as long and as is, as is involved as um, you can tolerate that that you can really take these these are not short endeavors you can get to a you can get to new ground pretty quickly you can start to feel better pretty quickly and and that can that can happen in all kinds of different ways the right kind of therapy uh, medicine, um sometimes even sort of just you know, relocating for a little while the the novelty of it all brings on some some sense of healing. But without trying to make it sound like you've got to be in therapy for decades to fully heal, I do want to say that 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 healing and development, especially if you've lived in a pretty, if you've had chronic experiences um, that have that have loaded you up in terms of of the the pain you're experiencing now. There's quite a lot to that healing process, and it, some of it is done in therapy. Some of it's done outside of therapy. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's done just in the moment-to-moment, day-to-day life. How you're treating yourself. If we think about the the AA model, they say ninety meetings and ninety days, kind of a thing. And that idea is that healing's intense. Healing requires dogged effort, and you can't just show up. You know, once a week at the beginning and, and get what you need. You might be able to go once a week. I mean, I'm talking about the Al Anon for AA meetings right now. You might be able sure. to handle once a week in a year or two. But for the first three months, let this be your all consuming effort. You know, make it to a meeting every single day. Read your books in between the, the meeting. I think healing is a lot like that. Like once you decide to heal, we see this, we see this in all those videos, cute videos on, on YouTube of animal, of, of terrified little puppies slowly being coaxed back into ease by, by the person that finds them. And you see, you've got to be pretty, you've got to be persistent. You can't just sort of give the dog uh, a a five minute dose of, of a positive environment a day and expect that dog to make any kind of progress quickly. If, you, if you really give the puppy or dog, you know, whatever, just a lot of unending you know kind of chronic sort of in a in a positive way these experiences of i know you're frightened but i'm still here i'm still not going to hurt you i'm still offering you food i'm still offering you touch yeah you're gonna that that puppy or dog is going to heal a lot faster yeah so i th- that's kind of a long rambling answer but those are some thoughts there
0: yeah no there's so many lessons in what you said and one of the things that i've learned in the business world and especially leading teams is that if you really wanna accomplish something, you have to focus so hard on it. And it has to become kind of your one thing. There's that book out there, you know, The One Thing. And the idea behind it is that there's all these things we focus on in life that don't, aren't really the most important thing that we should be focusing on. So I love what you said. If you're in a spot where you're broken, where you're struggling, it's gonna be intense. And I think that's a good reminder because we might have this idea of healing that it's gonna be, I don't know, maybe immediately, Helpful And hopefully it is, like you said, hopefully you can have some quick wins and get some positive results right away. But uh, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And so I think that's really helpful to remember that. And I remember talking with uh, some of the um, young people in our online community about how, okay, like, what's that one thing for you? What What is that one thing that you need to put an incredible amount of effort behind? In order to see the results that you want to see that are going to improve every other area of your life too, instead of splitting your attention and this and that. And so I think there's a powerful lesson in there when it comes to healing is that like we need that focus intensity to really go all in to, you know, do what you said, where maybe starting out, you need to do those, you know, 90 meetings and 90 days as the 12 step like a model shows. So a lot of great lessons in there. I think there's also this belief that healing isn't actually possible that you can only really manage symptoms i'm curious um your your thoughts on that i mean managing symptoms certainly is a part of healing i think mm-hmm. but um but i do think there's this mindset going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the interview where oh I can't really change I can't grow I'm kind of this fixed you know the, the whole fixed mindset where i am who I am and i can't become any better mm-hmm. what's your response to all that
1: yeah I mean my own experience and what I've seen in other people is that that it's total BS that healing isn't truly possible. Yeah. Symptom management is, there's a lot of people that believe that, that, that really symptom management is, is what this is all about. And sometimes people honestly just want that, you know, it's not everybody with a, a, with, with internal pain, interior pain really wants, is motivated to do all the work. I think, and it, that's usually because they haven't come to the full, they haven't, Faced the fullness of the losses of their life, and uh, the, the cost that it's it's that living that way it, it, it is requiring of them. But for those that really want full healing, full growth, to find their upper expansive limits, to become everything they can be, kind of a thing to to find a way to live each moment or, or most of their moments grounded and solid, and walking about tall and confident, and knowing themselves and. And being able to just genuinely interact with other people and receive from other people, and that is possible for everyone. Um, There are there limiting factors. Certainly, there's some we know there's some neuroatypical disorders, some genetic problems. You know, certainly that can that can limit somebody's growth in those ways. But on average, for for the general population, those that don't have genetic difficulties, that don't have uh, neuroatypicalities. Healing is, 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 is incredibly possible. It's not, I have a good friend who's a psychologist who says it's messy and expensive, which I find very true. I don't, I haven't yet found or or heard of people who haven't had to go through just a lot of work to do it. A lot of searching to, to get there because oftentimes not only are you, you're oftentimes still climbing out of some kind of abyss. It's not like you're, you, you've, kind of wiped your hands clean of the difficult stuff. And now you're just trying to find, you know, like the upper ends of healing. Like you're, mm-hmm. you're in a, you're in a confusing, dark, complicated place. And it takes a while to find your footing and to find the, to, to even kind of understand what that, what's going on in that place. And then to be able to to start to climb out of it. But I I know not I know I know no limits on healing aside from the, the few that I mentioned. Being able to, to be get to a safe place is really important if somebody's still living in the war zone, then healing is gonna be very, very challenging in those situations. And that might be the cases where I could say, Okay, maybe your best bet is symptom management, symptom reduction until you can get out of the war zone. But getting out of the war zone has gotta be your priority. And and once you're out of it. Yeah, there's no there's no limit onto how much you can heal if you want to. If you want to put the time and effort into that.
0: Wow, that's so beautiful and so hopeful. As opposed to the message of like, no, you're just stuck. <laughs> like, yeah. Good luck. You know, uh, we're, not we're not made that way.
1: We're we're just not made that way. Our system is made yeah. to heal. We know that physically. We know that yeah. emotionally. Like, yeah, that's it's just wrong. I think, <laughs> humbly, in my you. own opinion, it's it's wrong.
0: <laughs> no, I. Uh, I would stake my life on that, That it's very seriously, like that I wouldn't be where I am today if that wasn't true, you know? And so I think there's so much hope in that. Even when you were talking, I was like almost jumping on the inside. I'm like, yes, like this, isn't this what everyone wants? Isn't this really what we long for? And I think if there's one thing that holds people back from living that life that you described so beautifully is just the belief, again, that it isn't even possible. Because you're not gonna try something that you are confident will fail. And so if you don't even believe that healing is possible, that you can become a better, stronger person, that your life can become better, you're not even gonna go down that path. And you are gonna stay stuck. And so one challenge for everyone listening right now is okay, w- what are your beliefs around this? Do you believe that you can heal? Do you believe that you can grow? Or do you think that you're just stuck, that you can't change, that you can't grow? Give this some thought. I, I would challenge you there to just listen to what Rebecca's saying, that you can heal, you can grow. And there's I think one of the most inspiring things when it comes to changing that belief is seeing people who've done it and there's a lot of stories and that's why this podcast really exists because we in addition to experts we bring people on who share their stories how they've healed and grown and so uh, listen to those podcast episodes but i think there's there's so many great lessons uh in that and uh man yeah I just like my, my heart is like burning to be honest with you because i think we all we all desire that full life to live life fully alive to thrive to reach our potential to become the best version of ourselves like you said
1: Totally
0: agree. Yeah. Going back to the therapy question, sometimes people, I think another barrier to it is to healing in general is that sometimes maybe people may feel embarrassed about reaching out for help to, to seeing a therapist. What would you say to someone like that listening right now who is afraid, who who feels embarrassed about reaching out for help, especially scheduling a counseling session?
1: If possible, I would say really pay attention to to that embarrassed feeling and And, really try to get close to it. really try to understand it where that embarrassment is coming from. We can be shamed out of all sorts of things that are good for us. You know, just think of people who who um, get teased for for being a, a affectionate, you know, like um who, mm-hmm. you know, or, yeah, there's, there's all, you know, a child that wants to get their teacher's approval, then all of a sudden, all the other kids are calling that that kid, like, a you know, whatever, a teacher's pet, a brown nose or whatever it might be. Yeah. So we can get embarrassed and feel ashamed quite easily, based depending on how that's been handled previous in our lives. So if you're, if you're embarrassed about seeing a therapist or seeking help, I would say, try and take a look at that. And if it's too, if it's too challenging to figure out yourself, which it may be that that's, that would be really understandable. Try and find a, a really trusted friend or confidant or mentor, somebody who you can say, I, I there's this conflict going on inside of me. On the one hand, I'm, I'm hearing some things that it sounds like there's real potential and possibility out there. I really want to lean into that. And yet on the other side of me, there's a real resistance. There's a real embarrassment about going and, and yeah, so I'm, I'm, I would say don't abandon the conflict, feel the conflict and try and get as close as you can to it and understand it. And, you know, therapists have to stay confidential. There's very few things therapists have to break confidentiality for. So you don't have to tell anybody. You can just call up a therapist and say, "Hey, listen, I I don't know about this therapy thing. I'd like to talk to you for 15, 20 minutes. Can I ask you some questions? Maybe even schedule an initial consultation." And and you know I, you know depending on your age, if if you're too young, you might need a, a a parent to sign some paperwork. But almost always, you can call up and have a twenty minute conversation without having to have any paperwork signed, mm-hmm. or go to a, a a mentor, a coach, a teacher, somebody that you really trust and 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 just try and talk it out a little bit. Really allow for the idea that there are that we call them prediction errors in the field. That hmm. that maybe this embarrassment is not on. Maybe it's 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 a it's a you're not standing in reality and on solid ground in the embarrassment. Maybe that's coming from um, some kind of um, belittling or shaming or 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 some. It's coming from people who who you don't trust, ultimately, um, that those voices.
0: No, oh, that's great advice. And I love the baby steps idea, too, because I think that's been so helpful for me as well. And really engaging in that conflict that you feel inside of you. I think that makes so much sense. Even in external conflict, I found that as well, that if you run from it, maybe you need a little bit of a break, but if you run from it, it usually just gets worse. It doesn't solve itself. You have to really kind of push into the messiness, push into the tension the conflict and that's the only way it can get resolved quickly i know everyone's i think ears went up when you said there's very few things that uh, therapists can break confidentiality for um what are those things just because i think people are wondering what are those few things
1: sure sure we are mandated reporters so we have to report any reasonable suspicion of child abuse or elderly neglect We also have the duty to warn or protect, and that was born out of, I'm not sure what decade, 60s or 70s, maybe. Um, A psychologist knew of their client's intent to hurt somebody else, and at the time, under the way things were at the time, didn't disclose it to anybody, didn't release it, Mm -hmm. and that client went ahead and, and hurt the other person. So we now have the duty to warn or protect, which means if we believe our clients are a threat of harm to themselves or somebody else, we have to you know, take steps to protect people, whether that's... If it's a child, then I speak with their parents. If it's a, an adult, I, you know, might have to be authority figures or, you know, like law, law authority kind of figures. And then finally, judges have the right to subpoena records. So if any client of, of any of mine or somebody else's ends up in the court of law, the the judge may just demand to see the file and there's nothing we can do to prevent that. Um, I mean, there's an attempt, you can, you can try to quash it, but usually that doesn't work. So other than that, the the therapist can't break confidentiality. The setting is really designed very well to protect the confidence of the client.
0: Okay. And just to give people confidence in this too, those things aren't super common, right? Maybe, especially the, the uh, legal, like judicial and like where the judge
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Very uncommon. And oftentimes, you know, if a client, if I'm working with a client, especially the first one, the the mandated report around child abuse, sometimes these things have already been reported. the the uh, the, the importance there is, and, and sometimes it's it's past uh, the statute of limitations. So if, or sometimes if the perpetrator is now deceased, there's all kinds of ways in which that that's not quite that's not so black and white. There, it's not like we are always reporting every single time we hear of this there's mm. there's plenty of situations in which it's already been reported or like i said the person is no longer alive or the statute of limited each state has different flaws around that
0: okay that makes so much sense thanks for answering that because yeah, i think that could be a barrier for people and so thanks for making totally. it simple if someone wants to work with you uh, what are the steps that they should take
1: i have a website specifically designated for the safe and sound protocol that's denversafeandsound.com so, and on there you can sign up for a, a, a quick and easy 15 minute consultation. You can also email me directly through that, that website. I have, I, in addition to providing the safe and sound protocol, I also work with clients therapeutically for therapy, as well as provide psychological assessments. Um, you can reach me also for that through the Denver Safe and Sound website, then my, Personal individual website for that is just my name, Rebecca Showalter, com. So email is almost always the best way. I, you know, phone calls work as well, but I seem to not be able to keep my voicemail box from being perpetually full. <laughs> I just got to go through and like <laughs> erase a ton of stuff there. But I think some, that's been a barrier sometimes is that, that the sometimes that voicemail box gets full. Yeah.
0: Okay. That makes so much sense. Is there anything else that you offer for people like that? maybe want to follow you in your work but aren't ready to maybe work with you i know you mentioned the website but is there anything else th- that they can do to follow you
1: not at this point i mean i'm i'm on the cusp of having a instagram account up and going again that would be my name rebecca shoulder's id people are happy to look for me there there's no content yet but hopefully there will be uh in the coming maybe this will will give me a this will give me a good kickstart i can put some content up before this gets out yeah but as of as of right now those are the only ways the safe and sound i should say this the safe and sound protocol is a very quick intervention and it doesn't require it's best done in conjunction with therapy but it doesn't require being done in therapy so if somebody wanted to work with me for the safe and sound protocol we're talking about five hours of music usually spread over 10-ish days and you you can do it remotely um i would just be in touch via text or email to kind of see monitor see how things are going but that's a fairly low level interaction with me um and and, and it tends to be pretty quick um in terms of an intervention so
0: that's amazing and i think there's a lot of people listening right now who who do need that if they're outside of colorado are you licensed in other states or? Can they do that even if they're outside of Colorado, the Safe and Sound Protocol?
1: The Safe and Sound Protocol can be done anywhere. Since it's not a technical psychologist-client relationship, yeah, I don't need to be licensed in this state. For therapy, there are a number of states I'm licensed in, and you can see that on my website, Colorado, obviously, and then I'm part of PSYPACT, which just means I can work via Zoom in about 20 to 25 different states, and more states are jumping on that all the time, so
0: great okay i'm happy to hear about that i need to look into that more because it's such a barrier to for a lot of people getting help from a competent therapist That's right. so thanks for for mentioning that i want to give you the final word Uh, first thank you so much for your time and your expertise it's really amazing to speak with you Um, i've really enjoyed this conversation i've learned a lot personally and so thank you so much i know our listeners have as well i'll give you i want to give you the final word what encouragement would you give to anyone listening right now who who feels stuck who feels broken because of Everything that's happened in their family, their parents' divorce or a lot of dysfunction or just the breakdown of their family, what encouragement would you give them?
1: Yeah, great question. And likewise, i've I've really enjoyed being here. I would say, work hard, uh, persist at at finding what works for you. You're going you if people have lots of advice and and sometimes the advice is going to stick, and sometimes it's not. We live in a world, especially if you have access to the internet where there's so much on YouTube. And honestly, I think there are, are tons of good, there's so much good content on YouTube and all, all of these areas. I would say start digging and find people that whose who's voice, whose language, whose message content really hits home. And then listen to those as much as, as is good for you. You know, really pay attention to: does this bring me to a calmer, better place? Does it? Does it help clarify some things? Do I feel more solid and upright when I'm listening to this? And if not, go ahead and pause it and move on. So even if if the idea of of a more formal intervention or therapy is is not possible for whatever reason right now, or, or not even something you're interested in pursuing, doggedly pursue your own healing it will wait for you your, your your demons will wait for you until you face them and master them they're they're not going to go anywhere on their own so each each person's journey to that is incredibly unique and different and it's very important that it's, it's that you have ownership and agency in that so so start where it feels right to start start by you know yeah finding some good youtube channels or start by listening to the some music where a lot of people find that's very helpful. like uh, artists who have been through similar things and uh, write about it in their music, like get like explore is what I would say. Get out there and see what's out there. See what free content you can find. And then, of course, feel free to to reach out to me even if you're not at all sure what you want the next step to be. I'd be happy to to at least you know give you some ideas.
0: If you're interested in trying the safe and sound protocol, a few of the benefits that Dr. Showalter has seen in her patients, one, it helps to reduce social anxiety and allows people to laugh and have more fun. It helps them to think and even talk about past trauma without feeling as anxious or triggered. One woman who went through the protocol even overcame her fear of being hugged and started to show more affection to her friends. It helped another woman navigate the horrible news of her miscarriage in a calm way instead of shutting down or going numb as she had in the past. And overall, it just helps people to regulate their emotions, meaning either they don't get upset as easily, or if they do, they're able to calm themselves more quickly, feel safer, and less afraid. So if you want to try the Safe and Sound Protocol, you can sign up or watch the video about the protocol at Dr. Rebecca's website, Rebecca Showalter psd.com or just click on the link in the show notes. Now, if you're not able to work with Dr. Rebecca, you're in luck. Ever Restored, we're building a network of counselors and coaches that we vet, trust, and recommend. By using our network, it's going to save you a lot of time and effort in searching for a counselor or a coach. We'll also connect you with a trained professional who can give you the help and tools you need to heal so you can feel whole again and thrive in life. So, if you want to make use of our network, just go to restoredministry.com slash coaching. Just fill out the form. It's really quick, maybe 60 seconds, and then we'll connect you with a counselor, coach, or even a spiritual director once we find one for you. Again, go to restoredministry.com slash coaching, or just click on the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. If you know someone who's struggling from their parents' divorce or broken marriage, share this podcast with them. Always remember you are not alone. We're here to help you feel whole again and become the person that you were born to be.